0: It's such a joy to be here this morning, to be be here with you all. Um, I feel like, for those of you who don't really know me that well, I mean, I, I'm looking around the room and I see a lot of new faces. And, and um, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Drew, I'm part of the ministry team here. Uh, but I also have my, have my own ministry that I travel and I speak around the country. And so sometimes I'm gone for a week and sometimes I've gone for like a long time. And lately it feels like uh, I haven't been here for like a month and a half or something like that. And when I come back, I'm like, I don't know half these people, which means they don't know me and they don't know anything about me. And I might scare them when I start talking. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> welcome, and nice to meet you, some of you, and um, I mean, nice to meet all of you, but I i'm doing great this morning. So far, so good. all right, well i 'm drew, welcome i 'm really thrilled to be sharing the word this morning. Uh, We're in a series walking through the book of Acts. We're calling it Communities of Transformation. And something that Ryan has been saying is the question, kind of honored his heart as we're walking through this, is what does it look like to be a community of transformation? And as we walk through each chapter of Acts, what can we pull as principles from those chapters that we can apply across the cultural and the time bridge and bring those principles to us here and now today? And... One of the things that I, that I want to talk about first before I even get into the passage of Scripture that was on my heart to talk about for a moment is what do we even mean when we talk about transformation? And what is the transformational reality that we're talking about? Because uh, honestly, in our culture, there's a lot of th- there's a lot of things that can be done to transform our culture or ourselves that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus and nothing to do with what we're actually talking about when we talk about transformation. And so... Just for clarity, when we're talking about transformational community, and Ryan said it really well a couple weeks back, when, when we talk about this transformational reality in the gospel is a transformation that happens to us individually, but it also happens corporately as a community. And so the individual reality that then feeds into that corporate reality is this. When we talk about transformation, we are talking about the transformation that comes when our lives are encountered by Jesus and the gospel of Christ. Because again, there's a lot of things that we can do to change our world that have nothing to do with that redemptive eternal reality of Jesus. Not that those things are, are lack of value or aren't important, they are, but more than anything else is this eternal reality of what does it look like when our lives are transformed by Jesus and his gospel. And that comes when we surrender our lives to him. Second Corinthians three is an important chapter in understanding this, and it's an important chapter, just personally for me, because if you know my story at all, this transformational reality is something that is deeply important to me and has profoundly impacted my life in a way that then my entire ministry is based on this reality that we are we are we are letters written on our hearts from Jesus, known to be read by all that we are the living proof of the reality of the transformation of Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians three seventeen, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. In some translations it says, from glory to glory to glory. And when we talk about this transformational reality, we're talking about that. We're talking about being conformed into the image of Jesus, which according to this scripture does happen over time from glory to glory to glory. It is that that process of transformation that in one reality, when we come to know Jesus and we surrender our lives to him, we are born again and we are new. Creations, and yet also we are being conformed into his image over and over as we walk in submission to Jesus through our lives. And that happens individually and that happens corporately as we, as the body of Christ, are transformed into his glory, from glory to glory, into his image, from glory to glory to glory. And one thing that that really sets us up is this, and it's something I feel compelled to talk about this morning is that we are a holy people, a righteous people called into his holiness. And yet at times holiness has been hijacked to mean something that it doesn't necessarily mean or we apply it in ways that, that aren't right and correct, and that affects then our impact on the culture that we are meant to transform the world around us as well. Sometimes holiness, in my growing up, holiness really was talked about personal holiness and being set apart. It's like my life needs to reflect that set apart holy calling that Christ has called us into, and that's that's not wrong, but it's not complete. You see, in, in the Hebrew word, for holy, that hegeon, that that holiness, It, it can be translated a couple different ways. In some ways that has been translated and our meaning has been more passive, like a passive adjective that says you are set apart. But really and truly a more Hebrew way of viewing it is active. It's not passive. It's it really could be, like when you talk about the Holy Spirit, rather than saying the set-apart Spirit, it can be the sanctifying Spirit, the Spirit that comes to transform us from glory to glory to glory. It's an active thing. And when you look at the life of Jesus and you contrast that with the Old Testament, where the holiness or the purity rituals that, that we then have sometimes hijacked holiness to, to partner with, in the Old Testament, if you touched the unclean thing, you were unclean. If you touched the dead thing, you were unclean. There was a set of that had to happen. And even so much so that if you were unclean, you might have to leave the camp for a little while until you were made clean. But when Jesus came and the Holy Spirit dwelling in him and his holiness, when he touched the unclean thing, he made it clean. It did not defile him. He transformed it by his holiness. The sanctifying spirit at work in him transformed the world around him. And sometimes in our in our Christianity, we have seen the world around us and maybe some of the things that are dark or wrong or dirty, and we have cloistered away in our holiness to say we are set apart. But that's not the calling that we have. You see, we have the same spirit, and was said here earlier, we have the same spirit in us that raised Christ from the dead. We have that sanctifying spirit in us, and as we are transformed from glory to glory to glory into his image, we act like him, and we go into the dirty world, and it does not defile us. We bring the righteousness and the purity of Christ to the world. We transform the world. That is what it is to be a change agent in this world. It is to know and to submit to the transforming reality of Jesus in our lives, and we go and transform the world around us. Amen? I just felt compelled to share a little bit of that this morning. We are not called to be disengaged in our set-apartness. We are called to be engaged and take that reality, the holiness of Christ, into dark places, bring the light of the world to dark places. We are not defiled by engaging with the darkness of this world. When we are in him and we are surrendered to him, we act like Jesus. And when the dirty thing comes at us, we make it clean. Amen? Amen. All right. In old church days, we would just have called that a clap offering. Let's give a clap offering to the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hanky's in the air. You know, it's like, anyway. I digress. Uh, Acts 19. What we're going to do this morning is I want to read through. Uh, I'm going to break Acts 19 into two parts. We're going to go halfway through, and we're going to discuss what we just read. And then we're going to go again in the other half, and there's... Oh, what I want to unpack in both. So... Lord, multiply the time, and they've done a very dangerous thing again today. They have not put the clock down here on this monitor. So I'm going to need someone who loves me, thank you, my wife, to put a timer on me and at like 35 minutes, throw your shoe, and I will take that as a clue that I know. Yeah, we'll land the plane, Drew. That's what you need to do. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. And that's not a threat. It's a promise. So, Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I love this. They answered, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Fantastic. Paul said, That's my. No. So, Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, and that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Verse eight, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. that's fun. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas." In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, after, all had been, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. We're going to pause there for a moment. There's lots to unpack in that first part. So the first thing to consider here, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning when Paul was addressing these believers who had been baptized into John. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. I want us to understand something here, that repentance is always a first step in following Jesus. Because the reality of following Jesus is that when we come to Jesus, we first and foremost have to understand that we must repent of our own sin, of our own way. And repentance truly is, if you you look at the story of the prodigal son, which Jesus taught, not only as as a glimpse into the kingdom of God, how the Lord interacts with us, His children, when we are wrong, but it also was such a pictorial view, a Hebrew way of viewing repentance, that often when we translate it in the Greek, the word metanoia, which is the, the, the Greek word for repentance, means to turn around and go the other direction. But the pictorial view of repentance was more like this. You come to your senses and realize your error. You withdraw from the path that you're on and you turn back and head home to your father. And repentance truly is that all of us must come to this point in our relationship with the Lord. If we are to be transformed, we must recognize and come to an awareness where the path that we're on or the beliefs that we have or the habits we're instilling or whatever it is, is not of God. And we must withdraw from that and turn and pursue the Father. This is not simply like, I repent. No. Repentance is action. Repentance is volitional will. It is coming to agreement with God and saying, I'm wrong, you're right, and I follow you. That makes sense? We have to understand that repentance is being one of the first steps when we see this. We see this progression that these believers that believed in the one who was to come, because that was John's baptism that they were repenting and making way for the one to come. They just were unaware of who that one was. When we repent, we clear out the crap, honestly, in our own lives, and we make space for God to indwell us and to lead us. And that is what the beautiful progression of then being baptized in the name of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit is. Is because when we remove the things in our own life that are taking the space and the authority in our life, we then give God the authority to come and fill us, and fill us with power. Make sense? So I just needed to, to, to note that here, that these men were not only, they were agree, now agreeing with Jesus, repenting of their sins, repenting of their ways, they were now filled with the Holy Spirit, and with power. So now in the rest of this, this part of the chapter, we see that Paul is doing amazing things within this community. He is walking in his authority in Jesus. And his authority in Jesus had, you know, multiple things that were happening. First off, it was proclaiming the word of God in this city. And it was leading people to knowledge. Some people didn't want that knowledge when he went first to the synagogue. And when Ryan preached uh, on the last couple chapters, he talked about how Paul would first go to the synagogue to the Jews who had the knowledge of the Old Testament so that he can then make the case for Christ being the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Sometimes that went well for the Jews. Sometimes it didn't when they got obstinate and they didn't want to receive this. They didn't honestly want to repent of their ways. They just rejected the gospel, so Paul would move on, is what he did here. He then went into a lecture hall and started preaching to the city. His call to be the evangelist to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. And so he does that, and yet he's operating in such power that even the Jews were recognizing the power and authority that he was operating in. When it talks about, which is, this is one of my favorite, favorite in that, like, oh man, it's almost comical if it weren't so, like, sobering. That these, you know, it says that these Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And, you know, again, saying the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, I command you to come out. I want you to understand something that we don't often see Maybe we don't make the connection. If you look at verse 19, a number of them who'd been practicing sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. This is after the demon handed these seven sons their butts and and beat them to a pulp and essentially said, You have no authority. See, something that we don't understand in this the burning of these scrolls, there was a mixture that that had happened in in Ephesus. You can read about this in historical commentaries. There was a mixture that happened in Ephesus between the Jewish faith and what was very prominent in Ephesus was the worship of Artemis and the pagan worship happening there. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that after the second part of this, this passage of scripture. But there was a mixture that happened where There was a reason why the Jews were existing in this city without without upsetting anyone, is because they had been influenced by the culture, not the other way around. And so the Jews, who were trying to cast out demons, were not doing it with the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. They were doing it with occultic practices, literally incantations and magic to try to cast out demons. You can read about this in the historical narratives and the historical commentaries where the Jews were so polluted by the culture that they had been in, they wanted to act in authority, but instead they were practicing witchcraft because they had no authority. They were not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were mixing with the culture around them. And so these seven sons it was natural for them to view the name of Jesus as just a different incantation. So rather than having faith in it, they looked at Paul as like a sorcerer or someone who walked with more powerful magic than them, thought that they could just then appropriate that that incantation and continue to do what they had been doing. And I love, not that I love a demon speaking, but I think it's pretty funny when the demon goes, uh... Who you, you know, (laughs) Jesus I'm aware of, Paul I've heard of, who you, you know, and it's like, there's a lesson here that I really need us to see because I want to go back to what I was talking about, about being filled with authority. Filled with power and the authority that the Lord gives us. And as we walk in him and the holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit that walks in us, when we encounter a dirty world, we change it, not the other way around. See, there's something about authority here that we need to understand. As I was reading and studying this, something hit my heart. And it's a little heavy. And I'm not saying this specifically to anyone. I'm just saying this is my experience as as a pastor and as a believer for the last good Lord, 40 some odd years, and as someone who travels and speaks in a lot of churches and had, had the opportunity to know a lot of believers and a lot of different faith traditions in within Christianity, just saying the name of Jesus does not give us power and authority. We can get into the same mindset as these seven sons of Skiva. Where we think because we say the right thing or we quote the right scripture, somehow the demons need to bow down. The authority that we carry in Christ is not about saying the right words. And I want to say that again because we've even sometimes made salvation about saying the right words. The sinner's prayer. Or, you know... Even sometimes in, in deliverance ministry, people write up scripts about like, okay, here's the scripture you say, and here's how you say it, and that's going to deliver people. Bullcrap. Can I say this? None of us, unless we are deeply connected with Jesus and mature in him, have any business trying to cast out demons or walking in authority because we don't have it. Authority is not about saying the right words. It's about who has the authority in our life. And that let me, let me talk about this and give you some scriptural context for it because here's the difference. Paul walked in authority. Paul walked in authority because of the maturity in the relationship with God that he had. Before Paul came to know Jesus, he was Saul, and he was a student of the law, which meant he poured his life over those scriptures. And even though he didn't have the revelation when he was a persecutor of the church of who Jesus was and what all those scriptures meant, he had all the knowledge in his head, and he could quote anything. And everything. It wasn't until the relationship with Jesus became real and he repented of his wrong belief and behavior and then walked for some say years in submission to that before God empowered him to walk in the authority that he has now in this moment. Second Corinthians ten three through 5 says, "...though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging more according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, and we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ." That's one thing, and Paul wrote that from his own experience. Luke 10, 19, I'm talking about authority here. Luke 10, 19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Luke 9, 1 says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And we see Paul doing that. He has authority over the demons, and he has authority over illness. He is walking in authority. But let's take a look at Jesus' own words and the authority he walked in and understand the parallel, the, the, the principle here. In John 5, Jesus said this, truly, truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the father doing it. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. And to your amazement, he will show him even greater works than these. John 12, I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know that his commandments lead to eternal life, so I speak exactly what the Father has told me to say. Jesus walked in authority and Paul walked in authority, and any believer who walks in authority, walks in authority not because they say the words that magically will make things happen, but because they have the relationship with God where they're intimately connected with him, and what the Father says, they do. Can I tell you this right now? Emotionalism does not give us authority. Singing the right words in a song do not give us authority. Quoting the right scriptures do not give us authority. Saying the name of Jesus does not give us authority. Knowing God intimately and having a connected relationship with Him gives us authority. Because we hear what the Father says and we do what He says to do. Ever wonder why your prayers aren't effective? I'm not picking on you. I've wondered sometimes why my prayers aren't effective. Because I was not listening to the Father, and I was not connected with him. And I prayed wrongly. I, in my bravado as a young teenager in Jesus, said, I'm going to trample on demons. And I got my butt kicked. Anyone ever experienced that? Anyone try to confront a struggle in your life, but you're not connected with Jesus, and the struggle keeps taking you down? if we want to be transformational, if we want to walk in the power and authority of Christ, if Christ himself submitted himself to the Father and sought intimacy with the Father to know what to say and how to do it, we are not better than Jesus. Can I encourage you that first and foremost, if you do not have intimate connection with Jesus, can you please, please, please pursue it? Pursue it through so many, there's so many ways that the Lord has given us to pursue intimacy, intimacy with Him, and so much invitation He has given us to pursue intimacy with Him. But honestly, you guys, the most profound way to do it is to study the Word of God. We are a spirit-filled church. We believe the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Absolutely. I rely on the Holy Spirit. To spe- I, rely- I am relying on the Holy Spirit to help me guide myself through this message because Lord. But I will tell you this. If I am not reading the word of God, it's not just the Holy Spirit that's going to try to direct my life. And the discernment that I get to understand what is the voice of God versus the voice of my own head or the voice of the enemy, Jesus himself said, my sheep know my voice. And why? Because they know his voice through the word of God. If you are not reading the word of God, you will never walk in power and authority. Because it is his word implanted in our heart that the Holy Spirit activates and moves in us and that we discern the difference between what is a deceiving voice, and the voice of the Father. Read the Word of God for the love. (laughs) Also, there's something that comes as we are students of the Word and pursue intimacy with God and act like sons sons and daughters of God. Then the Lord does something with us that also gives us more authority. He disciplines us. In Hebrews, I'm not going to read the whole thing, in Hebrews 12, it talks about this. It talks first and foremost that if we're not being disciplined by the Lord, then we're not his. Because legitimate sons and daughters get disciplined. Illegitimate ones do not. And the discipline of the Lord comes in a lot. It's not punishment. Can I? uh, uh, so, uh, So many of us have had experiences where discipline is translated into punitive action. You get disciplined when you're bad. You get disciplined when you do wrong. But discipline, according to the scripture, is more about growth. It's more about maturing. It's more about instead of when you do wrong, because we do wrong, it's not the God who says, how dare you? It's the God who says, hey, buddy, you got some consequences. Yeah, you do. Let's learn from this. Get up and don't do that again, okay? I mean, maybe that's just how the Lord talks to me. (sighs) That is how the Lord talks to me. He's like, hey, buddy. I'm like, I know. (laughs) But the discipline of the Lord builds us up and it's not pleasant. The Lord, (laughs) the Word says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Oh, so good. We don't walk in authority unless we know the Word of God. We have intimate connection with Him, and we are maturing in Him. And that is something that Paul had. And just so that we understand the difference here, and I think the the Ephesians begin to understand the difference is that initially when the, the sons of Skeva, these seven sons, they looked at Paul and they revered Paul as a powerful person. And they wanted to use his incantation to mimic him, which got their butts kicked. What happened after that was they recognized the power of Jesus. And instead of worshiping Paul, people started turning their hearts to Jesus and here was the result, as it says, they, they they brought their scrolls, those who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now understand, this wasn't just the pagan people, these were the Jews that had been infiltrated by culture, that took their scriptures their their incantations and burned them. The transformational reality that Paul was living in affected Ephesus in such a way that at one point it had been a center of these scrolls. It had been a depository for these incantations. You can read that in in the history commentaries as well. It had been a place and a hub where people would come to purchase these incantations and take them back. But because of what God did through his change agent Paul, and the authority he walked in, they burned them. Do you know what happened, what later would happen? As we look at the power of transformation and the God that we serve, who is a God of exchange. Isaiah 61 speaks of it, for your ashes I give you beauty. What a beautiful analogy in this case. In fact, they burned the scrolls to ashes. What was exchanged? Do you know that Ephesus became a depository for the, canon, the, the scriptures that became the New Testament? Do you know how many books of our New Testament were written in Ephesus? Let me give you a hint. Well, 1 Corinthians was written in Ephesus. During this time period, when Paul was in Ephesus for three years, he wrote the first book of the Corinthians to that church. First and 2 Timothy was a book written to the church of Ephesus because Timothy took over the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians was written to Ephesus, and John composed his gospel and three of his epistles in Ephesus. And in fact, Ephesus became a place where all the scriptures were stored and compiled. What an exchange. Those incantations that were demonic and had no power, instead were exchanged from those ashes to the very scriptures that we are reading today and that have given us as his believers authority and transformation and power. What a beautiful thing the Lord did in that. And what a transformational reality that Paul in his obedience to serve the Lord transformed one aspect of that city from a place that stored the devil's scriptures to one that stored the very living word of God. Let's move on. What? Shut your face, your beautiful face. We're going to be a little late today, guys. Uh, 23, about that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who may... Okay, you know what? Nope. Let's sum up. This is going to be the Drew paraphrase of the Bible for the second half of Acts 19. So let me first give you some historical context cuz this is important. Ephesus is an important we need to understand Ephesus to understand what happens next. Ephesus was a huge city in the Roman Empire. About 300,000 people lived in Ephesus. Way big like way bigger than Medford. It was a magnificent city, and it was in the interconnection of several different highways that that crisscrossed, bringing a great deal of commerce and trade. There were public baths, theaters, one amphitheater that that could host 20,000 people. There were libraries and even paved streets, but more than anything else, there was the Temple of Artemis, which was noted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Something about the Temple of Artemis that we need to understand, it was made of Persian marble— It was the first of its kind. It was built 500 years before Paul came onto the scene because it was first a temple to Diana, which was the Greek goddess, but when the Roman Empire took over, they changed the name and kind of the context to Artemis because that's the Romans. And when he came to the scene, you have to understand it was 425 feet long, which a football field is only 360 feet long. And... It was 260 feet wide, and a football field is only 160 feet wide, so you can get kind of the scale of this. It was a massive structure. It had 130 hand-carved columns that stood 60 feet high. 37 of them were studded with jewels and gold. And it was said that the altar within the Temple of Artemis was beautiful beyond words. A poet named Antipater of Sidon wrote this, about it. And he was actually one of the people who coined the phrase, the seven wonders of the ancient world. But here's a paraphrase of what he said. I have set my eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon on which the road is a road for chariots. I've seen the great statue of Zeus hanging gardens of Babylon, the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of some other guy I can't pronounce. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliance. And I said, the sun has never looked on anything so grand. The worship of Artemis in this city This was the most Expensive Beautiful temple in the ancient world And The worship of Artemis In this city so affected the culture That yet another Person, a philosopher Who had traveled and spent time living In Ephesus Because the culture of pagan worship Will affect the lives of people around it said this about Ephesus. No one could live in Ephesus without weeping over the immorality that one would see at every corner inside. It was a deeply pagan, deeply broken, polluted city because of the worship of Artemis. And so what happens here is that as Paul is acting in power and authority, Some Demetrius, who was a silversmith, whose industry relied on creating small idols of Artemis for the trade, for the worship of Artemis, was threatened by the reality that Paul, in the gospel of Jesus, in the transformational power, was threatening the pagan worship, and thus the money, and so rose up in a riot— against Paul, captured two of his followers, dragged them through the city streets to the theater that they then filled with rioters, ready to kill his followers and denounce the move of Jesus in the city. Paul wanted to go and address it. His followers feared for his life and would not let him go. If you read the rest of the chapter in 19, Eventually what happens is one of the Greeks tries to get up and try to like separate, not, not the Greeks, one of the Jews named Alexander tried to get up and address the crowd like, hey, we're Jews, we're okay, they're not us. Because there was a tension that was building. They shouted him down and wouldn't let him speak. And eventually the, one of the, not the proconsul, but the, the clerk of the city came up and said, hey, listen, Artemis is great. And she came from heaven, and and we don't have to worry about this threatening our way, but we're going to get in trouble with Rome if we riot like this, so knock it off. That was the only thing that saved the two followers' lives, and it eventually was the catalyst that made Paul say, hey, i got to keep going on my missionary journey. But let me tell you what happened after this, because this is a three-year story in one chapter of Paul's time in Ephesus the believers in Ephesus continued to walk in their authority in Jesus. They continued to stand up under intense persecution. They continued to hold that balance of love for the people and a heart of the gospel transformational reality to those in their city. And they continued to proclaim the name of Jesus in power and authority and transform the nature of that city. One of the things that I would encourage you guys to do this week, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying this flippantly. I'm saying this like, actually, please do this. Read the book of Ephesians. Read the scripture that Paul sent to the followers in this town that was one of the most profoundly pagan cities in the ancient world. Look at the beauty of his appreciation for their love and their faithfulness in the tension of a culture that literally wanted to kill them. It is in this book that we read from Ephesians 6, Paul's words to his his church who he loved. And he loved this church. You can read it in his prayer for the Ephesians. Every time I think of you, I praise God for you is one of the things that he says. But in Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. I'm not, you know, please read that. Please read the definition of the armor of God. I know that in our, in our church histories, some of us have gotten into this us versus them mentality. We have one enemy. We have one enemy, and that is the devil. Thank you, five minutes, I see you. My lovely wife, thank you, Suze. We have one enemy, and that is Satan. And sometimes in, our, in what we see in our culture, and please understand, I, I'm probably, probably not I won't say more than anyone else in this room, but I've certainly have earned the right to say that I engage culture quite a bit in pretty painful places. For those of you who don't know my ministry, I'm just going to say it real quick, and if you are like, ah, buy my book and read about it and shut up. Uh, I struggled with my sexual identity as a young man. I identified as gay. I was in a relationship with a man. man. The Lord transformed my heart. His power to transform transforms everything this world says that he can't. And because of that, I am not against anybody. I am for Jesus. And my life has been so profoundly moved and changed by Jesus that I cannot do anything but proclaim what he has done. And unfortunately for me... I live in a world that really hates and wants to destroy that message. And I have stood in Washington, D.C., and spoke to lawmakers. I have stood, you can even see the video of me in Boston addressing a council who was trying to pass a law that would make the ministry that I received illegal and punishable with the same consequences as if you had human trafficked your children. In fact, we live in a world now that if I went to Canada to preach my testimony, I could face two to five years in prison. This is the world that we live in. I think I have earned the right to say that we have a struggle in the spirit that is antagonistic and hateful towards the transformational reality of Jesus. And I will say this again and again it is not against people that we're fighting. It is not against the culture that I'm fighting. It is against the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms that are evil, that are against Jesus, that, are, that want to see people dead and destroyed and imprisoned rather than alive and set free. And when you read the Ephesians, the book of the to the Ephesians, and you read this so often in our church culture, we read like the armor of God, and we read about spiritual battle, and we get this, us oh, against the culture. No, knock it off. Instead, can we understand that when we stand in our authority in Jesus, when we appropriate the armor of God, which if you look at it, the helmet of salvation guards our our minds, When we know who we are in him and that we're saved, we have a sound mind. The breastplate of righteousness, when we wear the righteousness of Christ over our hearts, then nothing else, our past shame, our sin is not what we're wearing. We are wearing the righteousness of Christ. So the enemy has no right to shame or discredit us when we are at the belt of truth, which is certainly the center of gravity, then we know the truth of God and the deception and the lies that the enemy is constantly pouring into our culture. Do not disrupt our center of gravity because the truth is our center of gravity. When we walk with the readiness of the gospel, of peace which is what says guards our feet. It means we walk in the word. We walk in the steps of the word of God which means our feet have sure footing. And we have the shield of faith, which means that any attack from the enemy does not hit us because we know and we trust God. Right in the middle of it, right in the center of it, that is where he's found. And then the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, but empowered by the Spirit. There's a lot of fools using the word of God wrong. And they're using it trying to hurt people rather than taking their authority in the Spirit. There's so much in this short little chapter. If we want to be people of transformation, let me sum it up like this. Repent. Repent of the things that the Lord would be displeased of or does not call us into. Withdraw from that path. Turn and face your Father and pursue Him. Be transformed from glory to glory to glory. You don't have to have this all figured out right now. I have tons of crap in my life that the Lord is still transforming. Hallelujah. So do you. But from glory to glory to glory, we are transformed into his image and into his likeness. Have intimate relationship with Jesus so that when the time comes, you know what the Father is saying and you do what he says. We do not fight a war against people. We fight it against principalities and powers and the enemy. And when we take our authority in him, we demolish those arguments. We demolish the strongholds, not in a battle, but because our authority dispels the darkness. Amen? I love y'all. Have a good Sunday. Bye.